Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of What's Next Live with my friend, Dan Pink, who's here, I think the second or third time on the show, but the first time for LinkedIn Live. So welcome, Dan, to the show. Hey, Tiffany. Good to be with you, as always. Well, let me tell you, I wanted to try to consolidate your bio, but let me just read this. If you don't know who Dan is, which I would be surprised if you didn't, he's the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, The Power of Regret, right here, which we're going to talk about. And also he has uh, other books, including When, A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestseller, Drive and To Sell as Human. And To Sell as Human is one of my faves. Uh, Dan's books have won, excuse me, multiple awards, have been translated in 42 languages and have sold millions of copies around the world. So welcome, Dan, once again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's get started because there's so much to talk about. I have so little time, but you know, you have written a few books that I want to sort of go back and revisit. The first one is Free Agent Nation, which I think (laughs) has been published a decade ago. Is that right now? Two decades ago. Two decades ago. 20 years ago, which is kind of shocking because I myself am only 28. So I wrote it when I was eight years old. Well, I'm 25, so you're still old, older than me. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, it when it published, uh, the Publishers Weekly said it has become a cornerstone of employee management relations. What, if anything, do you think has changed in the light of what's happened in the last two years around employee-employer based on what you wrote in Free oh, Information? Right. Okay. So <laughs> so, so that book, for those of you uh, who might not remember it, which is going to be probably 99.99% of all of you <laughs> listeners out there, uh, that, that was a book that talked about the raw, it, it came out in 2001, about the rise of people working for themselves uh, as freelancers, as uh, self-employed professionals, basically describing gig work before there was before there was gig work and uh, talking about how we're going to have more people doing this, uh, some of the reasons that it was happening, why more and more uh, people are going to be working remotely, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, I think that a lot of what I talked about ended up coming true. I think there there are two weird things. One is that uh, one of the forces that I described was technology. And I completely understated the technology. When I wrote that book, there wasn't there weren't <laughs> smartphones. There wasn't Zoom. Uh, there wasn't widespread Wi-Fi or broadband. I mean, you know, so the, the accelerant has been incredible. The other thing that I think surprised me, Tiffany, is that is how much the regular world of work, the W2 in America, the W2 employees came to resemble free agents came to resemble independent workers. And essentially what's happened, it's a massive shift of risk from the organization to the individual. So now people expect to be at at organizations for less time. They're responsible for more of their paying for their health care. They're responsible almost entirely now for their retirement savings, for their education and training. And so I think that, you know, one of the things I didn't expect was how much corporate America would come to look like free agent nation for better or worse. Yeah. And I mean, even talking about like the gig economy, how do you, how much that has changed with the advent of the smartphone? Um, and, and, you know, ironically, there was a, a announcement today that Uber and New York taxis are going to start working together, right? That the gig economy, you know, was very disruptive, uh, you could say, <laughs> to so many industries, especially 
taxis from an Uber perspective. And now they're joining forces to say, okay, you know, how do we make this work in a more symbiotic way where we're not destroying each other, but at this moment where there's, you know, hiring shortages and all kinds of things that can we make it better? So, you know, I thought that would be an interesting retrospect to have you go back and say, how has free aid, what, if you could write the headline today for that book, what would it be? Uh, I would say we, we are all for better or worse. We are all becoming uh, more self-reliant and independent and that's the headline. And, you know, the, the, the challenge there is that this is good news for some and less good news for others. And the other thing is, is that I think that might be exposing is how much, so much of what we take as the norm, what we took as the norm, basically the conditions of our society when we were born, we think is just sort of natural and normal and right. The idea that companies have a role in taking care of people, um, uh, that you go to work at a place called an office. I think those things are, I think those things are coming undone. I sort of have, you know, politically, I, I have a somewhat unorthodox, I have a view that, that pisses off people on both sides and that I actually don't think that companies should be in the business of taking care of people. Cause I think that, you know, which makes some people on the left crazy, but I also, it makes some people on the right crazy when I say that I think that we should have, you know, universal basic income and we should have health insurance as a right. And we should have of pension coverage, even beyond social security to take care of everybody. So I, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of agree. I think yeah. that there are more of the things that we can do. I definitely think there yeah. are more things. Well, we can one do. of the, I mean, again, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to empty the room fully here because <laughs> I, I think I've only emptied it partially right now in my initial comments. But one of the things that we, one of the things you discover is that in post-World War America, big companies had a kind of quasi-governmental role. They had a role in kind of protecting social welfare. They provided defined benefit uh, pensions. So my father, who passed away uh, uh, 11 years ago, he had a defined benefit pension. So when he retired, he got a check every month from his organization. You know, uh, whereas his kids all have 401ks. They have there's no defined right. benefit pension. Right. You know, right. um, uh, if you think about um, you know, so they, they companies covered all, you know, we have health insurance always still comes with the employer and the employer covered a lion's share of it. People get, uh, they gave companies gave in some ways sort of lifetime job security. So, um, you know, and, and we, and we think that there were some virtues in that, but you know, I, I think that people should get health insurance and people should have security in life because of their status as human beings, not because of their status as employees of a big company. But anyway, I digress. I feel like you need to do a uh, a free agent nation 2022 uh post i think i think i've got your and the next pink cast i think that that's oh hey, well, hold hey. on a second maybe that's what yep. it is yeah that's yep maybe that's what it is all right so i'm going to move on to the next one which was to sell as human so now we've gone through you know two years of you know i know you sort of you know shadowed sellers wrote the book understood that it was very relationship based and human based and now here we are uh two years into sellers um, really being much more hybrid, remote, and it yeah. may never go back to that face-to-face -face handshake in a lot of industries. What, yeah. what would you say about test to sell as human? It's going to depend. Uh, I think that whether we, I think that the, the big trends that I talked about there are still alive and kicking big time. So the big things that I talked about there is that if you look at any fun, any kind of job, whether the job has selling in its title or not, that people are spending an enormous amount of their time 
persuading, influencing, and selling in a broader sense. I think that has continued. What's more is that the other, so the other core argument of that book is that selling is not what it used to be, that we, that the selling environment for a long time was one of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. Um, I argue that we're entering a world of information parity, and I think that's completely been, been, been true. Um, and and I, so I think what it means is that what, what people who actually sell, people who actually have the word sales and selling in their title, um, you know, I, I think it changes. I think it changes what they, they, they've done. I think that that business of consumer selling is becoming much more transactional because consumers have so many choices and so many ways to find out information. I think business to business selling has become um, which is higher ticket items, more complicated transactions longer lead times. I think that B2B sales is essentially a form of management consulting now. I, I love that. I, I, might bar, I might borrow that, Dan. I might borrow that. I like it. All right. So uh, now we're going to get to the latest. So if you have not picked up your copy of The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, please go pick it up. It is a really fantastic book about how looking backwards moves us forwards. And I, you know, I want to start with what inspired you uh, to, you know, you have a very kind of eclectic topic you must go through a, you know, sort of decision making of what inspires me to want to dig more and learn more. And so something uh, triggered you to look more closely into regret. What was that? It was my own regrets. Um, you know, again, we, I, I would, you know, I, 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 you know, I wrote that book, Free Agination, 20 years ago. I would not have written this book 20 years ago. I didn't have enough mileage on me. I didn't have enough perspective in life. Um, this is not a book I would have written in my 30s, but in my 50s, it felt somewhat inevitable because I was at a point in my life where I could look backward and say, whoa, wait a second, how did that mileage accrue? <laughs> but then I can also, with, with, with some optimism, look forward and say, wait a second, I got plenty of time. I got a lot of years left. Uh, what can I learn from this part that I can apply to, to this part? And so when we reflect, when we think about our past, we inevitably think about things that we got wrong decisions we screwed up, actions we didn't take. And I wanted to figure out that for myself. And then when I started looking at some of the research on this question, when I first got intrigued by it, I was like, whoa, holy smokes, we have totally gotten this emotion wrong. We think that regret makes us weak. It doesn't necessarily, it can actually make us strong. We think that regret is something to be avoided at all costs. It's not, it's often something to be more productively to be embraced, to, to confront. We think that it's kind of an aberration. In fact, it is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. And so we've totally got this thing wrong. And I said, okay, maybe I can try to reclaim this emotion because I think it's the most transformative emotion we have if we treat it right. Well, and I mean, you, you, you've seen people tattooed, no regrets, you know, and signs, no regrets. And, and I think you've got an opinion on it's not about no regrets. I'm no, I mean, no, no yeah. regrets is not a, is, um, is not a healthy philosophy for living. It's completely unscientific. You know who doesn't have any regrets? Everybody has regrets. You know who doesn't have regrets? Five-year-olds don't have regrets. Okay, so five-year-olds can get a temporary tattoo that says no regrets because their brains haven't developed enough to do the the, Wait, the trapeze Public service act. announcement. Public service yeah. announcement. We are not advising you to give your five-year-old I said temporary. Okay, good. All temporary, right. because by the time they're seven or eight, they can experience regret. So that's who doesn't have regrets. You know who else doesn't have regrets? People with certain brain damage and neurodegenerative disorders because their brains are, are, are malfunctioning. You know who else doesn't have regrets? Sociopaths. But beyond that, everybody has regrets. Uh, it is one of, it is arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings experience. It is um, 
it, it, there's some research showing it's the second most common emotion of any kind that humans talk about and experience. I have I have my own research, uh, a giant public opinion survey of the whole U.S. Pop, of the U.S. population, showing that 87% um, of Americans say they experience regret at you know at least occasionally. So it is a ubiquitous emotion. Everybody has regrets. Uh, if you don't have regrets, it means that you are you you might have a grave problem. Well. I feel like this conversation in the book was perfect timing, right? We've gone through a horrific, challenging, anxiety-ridden uh, two years uh, with a global pandemic. First time sort of the world has experienced something yeah. simultaneously like this. Yeah. Yeah. And there are many that are reflecting on where they work with the great resignation. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to do all these things. I've changed careers. And maybe that is a look back regret that I've been wasting my time. My balance is off. I want to focus more on family and friends or travel or whatever it might be. I feel like it's been this spotlight on that look back and maybe people didn't call it regret, but I feel like that has been a great way to now have these very more personal conversations yeah. with someone without it being weird. Right. And weird is right. probably the fastest word I could come up with in that, in that, uh, in that example. But you shared a ton of stories in the book, which I'm a fan of trying to tell somebody something that is counterintuitive or maybe contradictory to what they feel today. A story is the best way, in my opinion, and I'm sure it is as yours as well, to get people to go, oh, I didn't think about it that way. And so your book is flooded with stories. What, what ones really stood out when you're talking about what you just described of why you wrote the book? Well, one of the ways I got the stories was by doing something called the World Regret Survey, where I set up a website and we now have about 20, I think we're over 20,000 now, we're at least close to 20,000. Uh, we have a database of 20,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. It's amazing. And each one wow. of those, as you say, Tiffany, is a is a little mini, uh, a little mini story about people's lives. And what it shows you is, is I think, among things is how universal regret is uh, and how much people want to talk about it, but also how useful it can be. So I'll give you just one of a gazillion stories here. So there's a woman named uh, Amy Nobler in Pasadena, California. Amy had a friend who she grew up with, a childhood friend. They hung out together. They were friends throughout high school. They go each go off to college. They start going their separate ways a little bit. They stay in touch a little bit, but not all that much. As young women, uh, Amy discovers that here is that her friend has pretty severe form of cancer. And Amy wants to reach out. But she says, oh, it's going to be really weird because she's going to think I'm reaching out only because she's sick. So she doesn't. So then she waits a little longer. She says, oh, she's going to think it's even weirder now. And she's not going to care about hearing from me. So she waits and she waits and she waits. And then when she finally calls, the, she learns the friend had died that morning and couldn't talk to her. Now, that's a bad situation. Now, Amy could have said, oh, no regrets. I don't look backward. Nope. Uh-uh. Everything happens for a reason. But she didn't do that. What she did instead of ignoring her regret or wallowing in it, okay, she, she could have said, nope, no regrets. I don't, I don't believe in regret, blah, 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 blah. Or she could have said, I'm the worst person in the world. I can't believe how stupid I am. I'm a horrible <laughs> human being. What she did is she right. says, wait a second, I feel crappy. What is this regret telling me and, and how is it instructing me? And she sadly had another friend who became quite sick and she treated this friend differently. Yeah. She called, she texted, she reached out. And that friend also died, but sadly, but Amy ended up with, when that relationship ended because of the death of her friend, Amy said, well, I did the right thing. I, I, you know, I don't have any regrets about that one. So this is how we deal with, this is how we deal with regrets. We have to go down the middle. 
We can't say we can't ignore our regrets. We can't we shouldn't wallow in our regrets. We should confront them. We should look at them as signals, as data, as information. And when we do that, there's a pile of evidence from 50 years of science showing it can help us become better negotiators. It can help us become better strategists. It can help us solve problems faster. It can help us become better parents. It can help us find more meaning in life. Um, and so, um, so we just have to start thinking about regret differently, not as something to ignore, not as something to bring us down, but as a signal, as data, as information that is clarifying what we value and instructing us to do better. Well, let me ask you, because you said something there. So I am keenly aware, uh, you know, people in my sort of close circle where they will get really stuck on that regret. Yeah. It, 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 it almost paralyzes them. Sure. To a point where they can't even seem to see their way forward right there. They're almost like to you, what you said, it's not that you, you don't want to forget them. You want to learn from them and move on. Um, and so there's a question here from uh, Tiffany Allen, who, hi, Tiffany, we used to work together uh, many years ago in Atlanta at a company called Interland. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, the only her, people allowed in the audience today are, Tiffany. are named Tiffany. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Or Dan. Or Dan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how do we take regret and turn it into a positive change in our lives? Sort of along the same point I was just yeah. making. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, great question, Tiffany, too. Um, a third of the book is devoted to this question, but let me let me summarize it for you. I look at it as three steps, inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward, inward. We have to reframe how we look at the regret in ourselves. Instead of beating ourselves up, instead of ripping ourselves apart, we should treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt and recognize that our missteps are part of the human condition. It's something called self-compassion. Um, when we talk to ourselves, uh, we end up being brutal and cruel and vicious in a way that we would never be with another human being. Don't do that. Treat yourself with self-compassion. Offer yourself kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that everybody has regrets and any mistake you make is a moment in your life. It's not the full definition of your life. It's part second step, disclosure. There's a lot to be said for disclosure. Uh, it's not accidental that 20,000 people have shared their regret with a complete stranger. Disclosure is a form of unburdening. When we convert our negative feelings into language by writing about them or talking about them, we make those feelings less menacing. Um, there's also evidence showing that when we disclose our mistakes, our vulnerabilities, our setbacks, people don't think less of us. They think more of us. So disclose and, um, and you know, outward disclose and make sense. And finally, you got to draw a lesson from it. All right. You have to be systematic in drawing a lesson from it. And the way to do that is to get some distance on it. We tend to stink at solving our own problems, but we're pretty good at solving other people's problems. So at some level, you pretend you're somebody else. Talk to yourself in the third person. As goofy as that sounds, there's a lot of evidence that that's effective. Or do my favorite thing, which is if you're deciding what to do, you know, ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? What would I tell my best friend to do? And so treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Write about it, talk about it, disclose to make sense of it, and then extract a lesson from it for next time. And when you do that, and when you start doing that more systematically, these regrets become ways to get better, not ways to bring yourself down. Well, I have a question for you on the disclosure, because yeah. I, I've said this often. I've, I've shared this on, on social media a number of times. When somebody shows up to disclose something like this with you or have this kind of conversation, you have to treat this like you're the keeper of somebody's soul, right? You can't 
um, take it lightly, brush them off. You know, you never know that that disclosure may be one day away from making a really terrible decision that they may be making, right? I mean, so, <clears throat> you know, treating that with respect and kindness, as, as Dan said, um, and providing that sort of psychological safety of if somebody comes to you and says, look, I'm really struggling with this backward looking regret. You know, I, I've looked inward. I now I'm ready, <clears throat> excuse me, to disclose it externally so that I can move forward. And, and, you know, did you, did you hear that in any way that when people got to the stage of disclosure, that there were good and bad experiences with that? Uh, I didn't actually hear that many bad experiences with, with disclosure because I think that, but I think that you're right, that you have to be ready for disclosure. And so, you know, one thing that you can do if you're uncomfortable disclosing it publicly is that there's some very good evidence. This is in the work of, um, uh, Sonja, uh, Sonia Lubomirsky and, and James Pennebaker at the University of Texas that's simply writing about your regret, all right? So if, you're not, if you don't want to disclose, that's cool. Write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days. That will be an important form of lifting the burden and also making sense of it. The big part of the advantage of disclosure is the unburdening, all right? Getting it from in here to out here, even if it's not public. The second thing is it's really, really important. Emotions by their very nature are amorphous. They're blobby, they're abstract. That's what makes positive emotions feel so good. But with negative emotions, that's what makes them feel so bad. So by writing about them, by converting them to language, you're defanging them. They're, you're making them less menacing. You're turning them from abstract to concrete. And so that itself is, is helpful, but it also begins the sense-making process. So if you're uncomfortable disclosing, don't disclose. Write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days. And I, it's going to be in a form of unburdening. It's going to be a form of sense-making, but you got to move to that final step. You have to say, what did I learn from this? And how am I going to apply it going forward? Let me add one more thing on a, on a very practical tip. This is why I'm a big fan of something called the failure resume, which is an idea from Tina Seelig at Stanford University. And here's what you do. You don't have to do this publicly. You make a list of all of your failures, setbacks, screw-ups, mistakes, blunders, et cetera, et cetera. You do that in one column. In the second column, you say, what did I learn from this? Right? So you explicitly say, what lesson did I learn from this? And in the third column, you say, what am I going to do next time? That itself is an incredibly productive exercise. Well, I'm right. I'm taking notes because I, I'm, I, I am going to, I am going to do this. I am I've done do it. This. I've done a failure resume. It was trained. It was, it was revelatory for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes we focus too much on the, on the failure. <laughs> yeah, but that's a, that's a great point, Tiffany. That's a great point. You can't stop there. Okay. This, you notice that everything that I'm talking about has a set of steps. So if you just say, let me list all my failures, that's not that great, all right? But if you say, let me list all my failures, let me say what I learned from that, that's the sense-making, and then let me say what I'm going to do next, that's the planning. Then that failure is not so much about failure, that failure is simply another form of, that failure is, a, is another form of information. It's the same thing with regret. If we focus only on, oh my God, I made this mistake, it's terrible, and you don't begin the process of treating yourself with kindness, trying to make sense of it through language and then extracting a lesson from it, that's bad. And the, the issue here is that no one ever teaches us how to deal with negative emotions. We've been sold a bill of goods that we're supposed to be positive all the time. Negative emotions serve a purpose. We should have plenty of uh, positive emotions. We should have more positive emotions than negative emotions. But a life devoid of negative emotions is not a life well lived. Negative emotions in small doses are transformative and helpful and the most helpful negative emotion we have is regret. 
if we deal with it right. Well, and I think that's why it's so greatly misunderstood. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's I'm uncomfortable to share it. Um, I don't feel safe. But I also think that, you know, along with the the lesson of not knowing how to sort of deal with failure, things that people should be taught is also communication. I mean, I think communication is a huge part of this, especially if you look over these last two years where people are making very different decisions about work and life and where they live and family and balance and who's going to work and kids and education and kind of everything on the table. How do I communicate back to my boss, let's say in this case, because you know some of this is also about decision making. Your book also really highlights why and you make certain decisions because of what you've learned, that whole sort of stepping, sensing, moving forward. What kind of communication learnings do you think people have to, to have or try in order to embrace, journal, share, and action something different? Well, I, I think it's I think it's a mix of things. If you're going to write about it, as I said, there's evidence showing that writing about it for 15 minutes a day for three days is helpful. And but that let's like, let's unpack the reason for that. If you just say write about your regret and don't have any boundaries around it, it could actually bring you into a, a into a spiral. So putting a fence around it, three three days, 15 minutes a day gives you a shot clock, gives you a limit, puts a boundary around it. Um, and so that that's really helpful. Uh, but I, I think the most important, so, so that, that's one thing. I think the most important thing though, is that the leader should go first. That if you have leaders who are saying, let me tell you about a mistake I made or a regret that I have. Let me tell you what I learned from it. And let me tell you what I'm going to do about it. That's powerful. That kind of communication is transformative inside of an organization. What it does is it normalizes failure and regret and it builds affinity with the entire team and it instructs people on how to do better. Well, you know, I always say this, do leaders think and believe they're right a hundred percent of the time? <laughs> we, right. We know that that's not true. What, so if it, if we all know it's not now, it could be 50% of the time, depends yeah. what it is, 60, 70, 80, doesn't matter. It's, we know that it's not they're right a hundred percent of the time. And so you pick the percentage of what percent you think they're wrong. So if you are a leader and you're listening to this and you have an opportunity where you made a decision, it wasn't the right decision and you reflect and you regret the decision maybe, and you communicate it out, it makes everybody feel better about sharing those failures. Absolutely right. You know, and if you don't, then the perception is, wow, I'm the only one that fails here, or I'm the only one that has regrets. Everybody else is perfect. What's wrong with me? And that's not healthy or good either. Right. So it, amen. Like, okay. Are you allowed to say, I know this is a secular, I know this is a secular broadcast, but I'm going to say amen to you on that one. Amen. So, and I have to say that back to your point in my twenties, I was sort of trying to figure it out. What was I going to do? Didn't really know in my thirties. It was about, okay, I'm just trying to climb the corporate ladder, make more money, have more responsibility. How can I really get to my goal from a corporate perspective and a job and a, and a career perspective. And then in my forties, I was like, I need a break. I was so spent in my thirties. And now my fifties have been super reflective. Like it's, you know, for those of you who aren't 50 and you hear people say this, when you turn 40, it's going to be totally different. When you turn 30, when you turn 50, I guarantee you, you get into this sort of reflective lens of life and say, okay, what have I done? What do I regret? What can I do better? And it may not come to you in the word regret, but I think if you have the ability to start earlier, <laughs> I agree with you completely. You will be in a much better position 
than I was, right? Because I, I think I came to be as self-aware later in life. When I was in leadership, I wasn't probably self as, as self-aware as I am now. So there are things to be said. So, so here I am, right? I am disclosing the regrets and in a public way. And, and it's also a way for people to hear that all of us have the same feelings. And I think there's power in that. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I discovered in doing this research in the World Regret Survey is how universal the kinds of regrets that people have. People have same basic regrets over and over again. They have regrets about making bad decisions that compromise their stability. They have regrets about not taking chances. They have regrets about not doing the right thing. They have regrets about not reaching out and finding connection and love with other people. That's it. Doesn't matter where you're from. Not many effects about on gender and race. There is one big issue, though, in in one big demographic difference that's worth considering, which is that when we are young in our 20s, we tend to have equal numbers of regrets of action, what I regret about what I did and inaction regrets about what I didn't do. Oh. But as we age, inaction regrets completely take over. What, as we get older, we regret what we didn't do. We regret not taking that chance. We regret our, our inactions much, much more than our actions. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, at the eulogy, they had no regrets, right? Like they tried everything, right? They just weren't afraid of it in that, in that sense. I mean, I think that dying with no regrets is not a bad idea if you know how to do it properly. I think it's, I think it's hard. And, and based on this research that I've done, I think we can make a pretty safe bet what the you or I of 10 years from now is going to care about. And so a lot of the decisions we make on a day-to-day -day level ultimately don't matter that much. We should just satisfy make it good enough choice and move on. But there are other decisions that actually have a lasting significance that we see from this research on regret. So decisions about, you know, I think there's an argument in this research for having a bias for action, as you say, Tiffany, for trying stuff, for doing stuff. I think we're a little over-indexed on fear of risk. Doing the right thing. We have a lot of people with moral regrets, people who bullied kids, who cheated on their spouse, who swindled business partners or whatever, and it really bugs them. So. 10 years from now, you're going to care whether you did the right thing. And then also regrets about connection, about relationships that were intact, you know, not romantic relationships mostly, but just our whole spectrum of relationships that were intact or should have been intact that come apart and nobody does anything. And then they drift and drift and drift and drift. That's what we're going to care. All of us here are going to care about in 10 years. Other stuff, what, whether we bought a blue car or a green car this year, not going to care. What we had for dinner tonight, not going to care. Whether I wore this sweater or another sweater to my interview with Tiffany, not going to care. Do you think that it's powerful in actually saying, I regret? I think it's powerful in two ways. I think it's powerful um, externally because you've done something to destigmatize regret, to normalize it. This thing that's already normal, but at least publicly it, you normalize it. The second thing is that it's a, it's a form of honesty with oneself. And what it doesn't do is it's, it's an honest confrontation. The, when people say, I have no regrets, when they have it literally tattooed on their bodies, they're doing it as a form of, to sort of display courage, but it's false courage because everybody has regrets. Real courage is looking your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. So if I say, I regret X, Y, or Z, here's what I learned from it. And here's what I'm going to do. That's brilliant role modeling. And it's also a recipe for healthy living. And I think that is a great way to wrap this up. Dan, it is always a pleasure. I love how passionate you are about every book and research and concept you tackle because I think it brings in a very approachable way a discussion and conversation about things that might be 
completely misunderstood like the power of regret. So I thank you. You've been a mentor of mine now for going on 20 years almost. Oh my I gosh. Think, I know, but although we're in our 20s, so we I know, I know. We well, five. we met on the elementary school playground. Yeah, when we had no regret. Right. <laughs> we, had, we had no regret. But I thank you for always showing up for me and saying yes anytime I ask. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you again for joining us here today on the What's Next podcast. It was my pleasure welcoming Dan Pink. And don't forget, do not go out. Do not regret not buying this book. So thank you again, Dan, for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. Always a pleasure.